Uh, turning your Bibles to Acts 23, verses 6 through 35, our text for this morning's sermon. I have been known to say aloud that I hate church politics. I hate it at the local level. I hate it at the denominational level. I hate the idea that you have to be very careful that certain people aren't offended and you have to be very careful that for certain people's uh, goodwill is, is uh, regularly stroked in the ministry. I've seen colleagues in the ministry make uh, career moves, if you want to call it a career, uh, based on political calculations to you know, cultivate certain relationships and be seen in certain settings. One of my mottos has, has always been play it straight with people. But I've learned there can be a certain kind of prideful arrogance, uh, seeing myself as above the petty issues that uh, are involved in running churches. I've also uh, seen that I have been guilty at times of, of a prideful negligence and that I'm willing to let other people do the dirty political work on my behalf while I remain separated from it. Now all that by way of introduction, did we, what we see here with the Apostle Paul is that he is willing to use all legitimate available means to ensure the faithful and fruitful proclamation of the gospel. Jesus said that we're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Uh, so the Apostle Paul is willing to use the civil law and church law. He's willing to use political means as well as religious means to do so. In other words, he's willing to play the game up to a point. So in chapter 22, 23 to 29, which we looked at last week, he insists on his rights as a Roman. Then in chapter 22, verse 30 to 23, 5, he insists on his rights as a Jew. And now what we're going to see is going to enlist co-belligerents in his conflict with the authorities in verses 6 through 10, uh, seeking their support, and then he will expose a plot. He'll get involved in intrigue in order to protect himself. Uh, so let's look at the, these two events. First of all, uh, the Apostle Paul will enlist the support of co-belligerents. It's something of a stroke of genius. He sees that there's no possibility that he's going to get a fair trial under Ananias, who just you know, had him struck illegally against uh, normal due process in a Jewish court. And so, in verse 6, we read, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, just pause there for a moment and look down to verse 8, uh, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Uh, so the Apostle Paul was brought up a Pharisee. He was a very devout uh, Pharisee. And they will be with Paul when it comes to the issue of the resurrection. However, the Sadducees, who make up half of the court, half Pharisees, half uh, Sadducees, the Sadducees don't believe in the supernatural at all. Uh, they're something uh, of what you might call um, you know, free thinkers. They're anti-supernaturalists. And so what does the Apostle Paul do? He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So what he's really doing here is invoking the principle, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He finds uh, co-belligerents, allies in his cause, and remarkably, the strategy works. So we read in verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
and the assembly was divided, which was the apostles. Uh, that was his goal. Verse 10, um, and when the dissension became violent, the tribute, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and, and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So uh, moments before, these Pharisees, uh, they would have, uh, they, they were ready, uh, along with the Sadducees, to tear the Apostle Paul apart. Uh, and, and, and remember about these Pharisees, that Jesus' strongest words of condemnation were directed at Pharisees. Okay, we just read them in Luke chapter 11. He calls them a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes in Matthew 23. He calls them whitewashed tombs, all clean on the outside and, and in the inside full of, of death and, and corruption. And yet at this moment, the Apostle Paul is willing to identify himself as a Pharisee. Uh, why? Well, because at this one point, at this single point of the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead, they are on his side. Now, they're not going to agree about much of anything else, but they agree on this, and as a result, the Apostle Paul is able to escape the judgment of the council, because the council then splits as the Pharisees begin to defend the Apostle Paul um, on that uh, common ground that they share about the resurrection. And, and in the meantime, he's shifting the focus to the real issue, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what's, uh, what's the lesson to be uh, learned here? Uh, I think the lesson is that we are wise to form alliances where able, we are able to do so. Now, on June 22nd of 1941, uh, Nazi Germany invaded Russia. And now, the, the Soviet Union, rather, what I should call it, the Soviet Union at that time was one of the most barbarous nations in the history of the world. It was just ab absolutely horrendous uh, being led by, you know, Stalin. So this is, this is an invasion of Stalin's Russia, uh, Stalin's Soviet Union. Within three weeks, the British had an alliance with the Soviet Union. And there was some question about this. What are we doing allying with this monster, Stalin, and the country that, that he's leading? And what Churchill said to the House of Commons, their parliament, he said, if Hitler in invaded hell, I would put in a good word in the House of Commons for the devil. <laughs> okay, that was a bit of, uh, you know, a hyperbole. But he was ma making the point. Uh, we need allies wherever we can get allies and if we can get it, uh, an ally in the Soviet Union, we need it if we're ever going to be able to, do, to defeat what is understood to be the greater monster at that time, which was, which was Hitler. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I think that as, uh, as believing people, we need to look for alliances, co-belligerents, I'm calling them, wherever we're able to find them. Let me give you some examples. One of the clearest, loudest voices in the whole pro-life pro movement for years, there was a man by the name of Nat Hentoff. He was uh, a writer for the Village Voice. Um, he was an he's an atheist, but on the, the subject of, 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 of abortion, did we have a fellow ally from whom we can learn? Absolutely. Uh, Cyrus Gordon, a Jewish scholar, defended the integrity of the Old Testament, particularly the, the first five books of Moses. Uh, do, we, do, we have, uh, do we have something to learn from Cyrus Gordon? Yes. Uh, today, Tom Holland has, uh, in his book Dominion, has established the fact 
that nowhere in the world and in the history of the world has there been this concept of universal human rights except where Christianity has gone. You don't find it in antiquity. You don't find it among the Egyptians. You don't find it among the Greeks or the Romans or the Persians or the Babylonians or, or anyone else. You don't find it anywhere except where Christianity has gone. Uh, can we make use of, of the work of, of Tom Holland? Uh, ab absolutely we can. Uh, what about Thomas Sowell in his writings about culture and race? Uh, he's absolutely brilliant. Maybe, maybe the most brilliant um, student of the liberal arts that uh, has lived in our generation. Do we, have a lot, do we have things that we can learn from him? Certainly we can. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's hit a little closer to home. You know, Al Mohler is a, is a Baptist. I mean, it means he's got some things wrong, okay? He, he doesn't understand uh, the covenant and, and baptism. Nevertheless, his daily briefing is absolutely insightful, brilliant. I listen to it every day. I'm, I'm, I'm astonished at what he is able to gather together on a daily basis and run a seminary and speak all over the country. I'm amazed. Um, one of the strongest... Uh, uh, movements in the pro-life uh, cause has been the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, can, they, can we be co-belligerents with them? Uh, yes, we can. Uh, we, we, um, we don't agree about the sacraments. We don't be, agree on justification. We don't agree on ecclesiology. There's a lot of things that we don't agree on. On the other hand, we, all, we can say the creed with them. All the doctrines of the creed, we agree on those. We uh, agree on the doctrine of God. We, we agree on basic ethics. So can we be co-belligerents with Roman Catholics? Indeed, we can and we are. And they're doing some of the very best work defending the unborn. So we need to be able to link up with people. Look, if the Apostle Paul can say that he is a Pharisee, I can say I'm a Reformed Catholic. Or with, uh, uh, with uh, Edith Schaefer, I, I can say Christianity is Jewish. And I think we're going to find in the future that more and more we are linking up with co-religionists across the whole spectrum. Uh, because at least a, a shared moral framework where we can join together in, in order to preserve basic and, and, and fundamental moral principles and, and ethics. So the Apostle Paul is able to say, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. That was true. In doing so, what was he doing? He was calculating, wasn't he? And he was discerning his audience. He sees Pharisees, he sees Sadducees. There's no possibility of justice in front of that court. So what does he do? He thinks, aha, I'm going to identify with the Pharisees. I'm going to divide the court. I'm going to say the thing that I'm defending is the resurrection, which it is. And as he does so, he enlists them on his side and escapes the clutches of a hostile court in the process. Then secondly, I want us to see that the Apostle Paul is involved in intrigue in exposing a plot and there's the significance of him doing so. So we go on then and in and, and verse 10, uh, so when the, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid the apostle Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So this is the third time the apostle Paul has had to be rescued from violence in Jerusalem. Now, uh, what do you think is the emotional impact of these uh, confrontations? I think it has to be devastating. The Apostle Paul is not divine. He's, he's just a regular flesh and blood human being. 
And just one conflict with an angry person is unsettling, isn't it? You have one person get face to face and scream at you and, 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 and express rage against you. That is unsettling. It can stick with you for days and weeks and months and years. When I was in the second grade, uh, we were supposed to be um, participating in the May Day Parade. That's what we had out in California. We had a May Day Parade in our elementary school. And, and uh, my, my class was supposed to be marching around like rag dolls, and apparently I was marching around like a toy soldier. Way too stiff. That will not surprise some of you. <laughs> my second grade teacher came, grabbed me by the shoulders, and shook me like this, and said, you're supposed to be a rag doll, not a toy soldier. Listen, that was 60... Two years ago, I'm telling this story today. I was totally traumatized by it. <laughs> right? So one angry person, especially an authority figure. The Apostle Paul's been in front of mobs. He's been in front of courts. He's been in front of the high priest and authorities, and they are enraged against him. Is that unsettling from him? Is he anxious about that? Is he fearful because of that? Absolutely he is. So what happens next? For the second time, go back to Corinth in chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. The following night, we read in verse 11, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That you must is a little Greek word that indicates divine necessity. The apostle Paul needed this. He was wondering. He's been, he's been in custody for two years. He's wondering if his usefulness is over. Will they ever get out from the clutches of the authorities here? And what Jesus is saying to him is, no, you will be my witness in Rome. You are, you are not going to be uh, judicially executed by these people. You will not be permanently imprisoned by these people. Do not worry about this. Do not be anxious about this is what he's saying. Take courage. In the words of Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. So he's being, he's being encouraged in, in what are otherwise very discouraging circumstances. So most, we, we can pretty much count on the fact that we're not going to have a visitation like that. We're not going to have a vision like that. These are extremely rare. They're particularly concentrated in the, the apostolic era. But when we're in discouraging circumstances, do we have promises? That's basically what this is, is Jesus is making a promise to him. Do we have promises that we can cling to when times are dark, when times are discouraging? Oh, yes, we do. And we have the promise, I will never leave nor forsake you, from Hebrews chapter 13. We have the promise of Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have the promise of Romans 8, uh, 28, all things are working together for your good. Not some things, not most things. All things are worked by God sovereignly, powerfully. Now, whatever the, the appearances might be, whatever, whatever it might seem is going wrong, no, they're all working together for the good of God's people, for those who, are, who love God and are called according to his purpose. So that's essentially what is happening here. It's a testimony uh, to the, the, the kindness of God toward his servants, toward his people, that he gives, he extends these promises to us that reassure us, that give us confidence and courage when we're in difficult circumstances. 
So in, in verses 12 through 15, then the plot unfolds that he is soon to expose the following, uh, rather verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you along with the council give notice to your tribune to bring him, to, to bring him down to you, that is, bring him down from Caesarea to Jerusalem, um, to, to, uh, as though you were going to determine this case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And so notice what's going on here. You have the authorities, the priests, linking up with assassins. This, is, this gives you some idea of the, of the status of the clergy in, in the time of, the, uh, of, of Jesus and the apostles. The clergy are participating, you see it there in verse 14, the chief priests and the elders. These are the, the leading religious men. These are the leading authorities. They are, they are joining in a conspiracy to kill the apostle Paul. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambition ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. One of the commentators refers to this as a sweet providence of God, that the son of Paul's sister somehow is, is present when the whispering about this plot is going on, and he overhears it. Now, what's the apostle Paul's response to this? Is he going to say, now listen, son, you don't worry about this. This is all in God's hands. Let's just, uh, let's just wait and see how things unfold. We're going to trust God to handle this. We're going to pray about this. And, and we're, we're going to continue to you know, preach our message. But we're going to pray and we're just going to trust that God's going to bring us through this. And so you just go home and, and don't tell anyone about what you saw. Is that, is that what the Apostle Paul does? Or, or does he see uh, the providence in this young man being in learning of the plot, and, and is that then, does that then give him reason to act on that rather than passively just receiving it, but taking steps to make sure that the authorities learn of the plot? In, in other words, is the one kind of a trusting in God and the other taking things into your own hands? No, not at all. The opportunity presents itself. The window is open. The door is open. He's got to step through this. He needs to seize the initiative and make sure that the right people learn what's going on. There's, there's a, there's sometimes I think that we're guilty of a kind of a passivity about what it means to trust God as opposed to a more active faith that takes, uh, uh, takes advantage of opportunities, that, that seizes the moment. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. Beginning of verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man. Notice the Apostle Paul, because he's a Roman citizen, he's giving the centurion orders because he is their social superior. Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell. So he took him and brought him to the, tr to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow 
as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, and they have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. All right, so then uh, the tribune now knows. So what's his response going to be? He raises a substantial force of 470 men to counter the, uh, the 40 assassins, 10 to 1. Verse 23, when he called, then he called two, two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as, as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. In other words, they are in Jerusalem and he's going to be transferred to Caesarea, and they're hoping to assassinate him on the, on the way from Jerusalem back to Caesarea. And uh, uh, the, the tribune, knowing of the plot now, is going to make sure that nothing is going to happen to the Apostle Paul who is entrusted to his care. So again, what's the principle here? Well, there's an old Latin proverb. If you want peace, prepare for war. Um, uh, if you want to prevent a war, you better prepare for war. You better be strong. Uh, another form of that is peace through strength. In other words, be so overwhelming in the force that you are, you are able to put in the field that nobody dares to attack. And if nobody dares to attack, there's peace. There, there will be no fulfillment of the plot. So this is what he does. 470 to 40. They're not going to attack. They are so intimidated, they are so outnumbered, you have presented such a powerful force that they will back down and they will not cause conflict. That's the principle that he is invoking. If you want peace, prepare for war. They're prepared. Uh, verse 25, Claudius Lysias, or Lysias, uh, uh, well, well, let's back, back up to verse uh, uh, verse 24, uh, verse 25, he wrote a letter to this effect to the governor, uh, Felix, uh, Claudius uh, Lysias, to his excellency, the, government, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and therefore deserving protection. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Typ typical se secularist uh, view of religious matters. Oh, just questions about the law. Like, you know, the religious stuff, not very important. Uh, you know, who knows, petty things. But you know, you know how those religious people are. They're arguing about doctrines and things. But nothing de de deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, which is 30 miles, 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem, by night, so that it will be 
a more safe journey, at least in those days. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what providence he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, which is southern Asia Minor, uh, along the coast of uh, southern Asia Minor, I will give you a hearing when your accusers come. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So all the pieces uh, are in place. The apostle has safely arrived in Caesarea. What is the answer to the question? How did he get there? He got there because he was wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. He invoked Roman law in order to prevent a flogging. He invoked Jewish law in order to stop the assaults on his freedom. He split the court between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then he passed on a rumored plot to take his life so that now he is protected by the power of the entire Roman Empire. That's being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Similarly, I would say that we need to be wise about protecting our ministry and our message. We need to appeal to the courts when it's necessary in order to protect the free exercise of religion. Right? We have that right. We're like the Apostle Paul with Roman law. We have American law. We have the right to the free exercise of religion and the concomitant freedoms that go along with that. Freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom to assemble. Those three are connected to religious liberty, and that's indeed how those three liberties were won. Was, it was, they, they, were, they were hammered out on the anvil of dissenting Protestants in the English-speaking world. So it was the English Puritans and the Scottish Covenanters between 1662, well, before that even, but particularly 1662 to 1688. Act of uniformity, legal conformity required of all Christians resisted by the Puritans and their descendants, resisted by the Scottish Covenanters. And so for 20 plus years, they suffered. And finally in 1688, the glorious revolution and the, the act of toleration and non-Anglican Christianity then became legal in the English-speaking world. So the Congregationalists and Baptists and Presbyterians were legally recognized by the, the government and religious toleration granted uh, to them. What comes with religious toleration? Well, you, you can have religious toleration and then deny freedom of speech. How do you have religious toleration? Religious toleration but deny the freedom to assemble? Then it's not religious toleration. Uh, deny the freedom to, to print, uh, to, to publish? Then it's not religious toleration. So it was on the backs, just historically speaking, religious liberty, it was on the backs of religious liberty by our ecclesiastical, theological, denominational ancestors that these freedoms so cherished the free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom to assemble, those were all hammered out on heroic figures from our, our past. Should we appeal to those rights in any way that our ability to, to speak and to publish is threatened? Absolutely we should. It's part of the free exercise of religion. It's part of the freedom of speech. If, if we get classified to our speech as hate speech, if, if, if our rights are infringed upon in, in any way, we should be correcting misrepresentations of us and forging rights with others in our common cause. 
Back in 1981, a University of Virginia scholar James Davidson Hunter uh, published a book called Culture Wars, and he was saying, you know, we're, he was predicting there was a civil war coming in the United States. For, you know, world-class scholar, it really proved to be prophetic. He was anticipating the kind of cultural issues that uh, were facing all of the Western world, in particular Christianity. A few years before that, uh, Richard John Newhouse, a Catholic priest, published a book entitled The Naked Public Square. That was in 1984. And his point was, there will be a philosophy that occupies the public space in any civilization. There will be a philosophy, a theology, a morality that is going to fill the public space. That will determine what's allowed on the billboards. That will determine what's allowed on the airways. What will be defined as obscene? What will be disallowed? What will be taught in the public schools? What concept in those schools will be taught regarding the family and marriage and what it means to be male and what it means to be female and what is normal and what is healthy? There are two competing visions for what it means to be an American today. They are mutually exclusive and hostile to each other. In the future, by God's grace, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves uh, because uh, we are more and more, uh, we are more and more being targeted. Uh, we, we, we are more and more at risk with the loss of some basic freedoms. And so as, the as we face the future together, we need to be ever vigilant to make sure that these, these basic rights are not infringed upon in the name of a, of, of a, of a uh, alternative morality, in, in the name of a, an, an alternative philosophy, an alternative theology that is de de demanding that it alone is able to occupy the, the naked public square and exclude all others from it. And, and I'm not being alarmist in saying this because this is already happening all over the Western world, happening in Canada, happening in Australia, happening in Western Europe. Uh, these, this is what is happening. These are the trajectories. That's what we need to pay attention to. What is the trajectory of freedom right now? And is it, is it, uh, is it to our benefit or is it to our potential harm? And, and my reading of the situation is we need to be vigilant. We need to be aware. We need to, we need to not bury our heads in the sand. We need to eschew naivete and be very alert to what's happening in the culture right now. And be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. We're not looking for a fight. We're just preserving our rights to, to have a voice in the public square, uh, to, to preach and teach what we believe, our theology, our ethics, our morality, our message, our mission. Um, uh, and, and, and as the Apostle Paul will appeal to Roman law and, and, and enlist co-belligerents, that we're going to need to be forming alliances for the whole spectrum from, um, from our fellow Presbyterians to, yes, even the Baptists and the Roman Catholics and, I dare say, uh, Orthodox Jews and, and Muslims at certain points. And we're going to do evangelism with them. We're not going to hold theology conferences with them, but uh, on certain issues which uh, have to do with the pres preservation of our mission and, and our message and, and protecting the rights and freedoms that, that have been hard won in our civilization, yeah, co-belligerents, allies, 
wherever we can find them in, in order uh, to uh, faithfully and fruitfully preach the gospel uh, in, in coming uh, generations as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we rejoice, O oh Lord, in the, the wisdom that you imparted to your apostle. And we pray that we would have such wisdom, that we would have some, such insight and, 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 and such courage uh, to protect your gospel using the available means. We pray that we would, we would be bold in the days ahead. And we pray, O oh Lord, that the trajectory that we have been witnessing for 60 years, this downward spiral, would be reversed. And that uh, uh, the threats would be removed and the freedoms uh, reaffirmed. Freedoms that we have enjoyed as a, as a civilization for centuries. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.